film and television. Merely entertainment, right? No. There's so much more to film and television that changes our perspectives. And as a result, we can have different, either realistic expectations or non-realistic expectations about what life is really like. Whether it be horror that helps us develop a habit of turning every light on in the house or a comedy that helps us relieve tension in the saddest times of our life. I want to go in the Wayback Machine and find out exactly what movie helped shape you. I'm Oma Shadi, and welcome to the Between the Bannisters podcast. Friends, countrymen, welcome back. New episode, horror episode. I'm really excited to be doing this for spooky season. And I know I've been digging into the archives for a lot of our spooky episodes, which truth be told, Between the Bannisters really started off about what horror movie scared us the most, shaped us, what have you. But I realized that there's so many more genres that are formative to us, but does not mean that I'm not going to get spooky when I want to get spooky. So today I'm really, really excited, as I am all the time, to have my guest on today, who is Mr. Andrew Pope. Now, Andrew lives in London, where he has a quote-unquote real job in the city. But in his spare time, he writes about cult, weird, horror, and art house pictures for his blog, WhitlockandPope.com, which he co-runs with his more elusive colleague, Genesis Whitlock. He's old enough to remember local VHS stores before Blockbuster came along, and to have seen E.T. in its initial release, which is amazing. I absolutely love that. Andrew, what are we talking about today? We are talking about John Carpenter's masterpiece, The Thing. I'm so excited. Uh, <laughs> We're going to talk about this movie for a really long time. And nobody's brought it to my doorstep. So I'm so glad that you did. I'm so glad that you did. My pleasure. My pleasure. This is a big film for me. This is a top 10 movie of all time for me. So I'm, I'm excited. I'm happy that it is top 10. So tell me, like I always run through what about this movie, like, or why this movie above all others that you could have chosen? Well, um, I, <laughs> I am of an age where my introduction to the concept of watching a movie was very much based around the old uh, mom and pop video stores, mm-hmm. the old VHS stores, like pre-Blockbuster, uh, like right back in the 80s, uh, being taken out by your parents to, to go pick a video from the VHS store. And like many people, I was always intrigued by the horror aisle. Mm -hmm. So my folks would be like, uh, oh, what are we going to rent? You know, Superman 1, then the next night Superman 2, or Rocky, and then you take that back and get at Rocky 2. These are my (laughs) earliest memories of, like, renting stuff. But while they would take forever to pick a video, I was free to kind of wander around as a small child Mm-hmm. And um, they didn't really section off the, the horror stuff. So I would just be gazing at the, the covers of various things. And all of a sudden, I'd find myself in this kind of a very special little section where I would be looking at stuff called uh, The Exterminator or <laughs> Squirm. I got a really strong memory of like the, the front cover of Squirm I had like a woman in the shower. And yeah. it was like, worms coming out the shower or something mm. all over and she's like oh what's going on in my shower so <laughs> i still had never seen that movie but it's like emblazoned in my in my memories uh slugs uh i mean the, these are kind of considered cult classics now but they're they you know they're kind of schlocky drag at the same time uh but there was good stuff as well what what, what i know now know to be good stuff like uh carrie Mm. Uh, Videodrome and The Thing. And not only was I looking at these front covers, but I was also sneakily reading the taglines and the backs and stuff. And some of the phrases, like um, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, uh, Freddy's Revenge, uh, the, the thin membrane between dreams and reality is about to be torn apart. Uh, and I think Videodrome was something like... Uh, First, it takes over your body, then it destroys your mind, or mm. stuff like this. This and this stuff was like really powerful to me. I was like, "What is going on in these films <laughs> that I will never be able to see?" But the best, the best tagline was the thing: mm. "Man is the warmest place to hide." Yes. <laughs> for for a kid holding this box, "Man is the warmest place to hide." You've got that classic front cover with the guy which John Carpenter apparently really didn't like with the guy in the, like the 
lined the suit, uh, yeah, yeah, with the with the um, like Drew Struzan, I think, with the light coming out of the face. Yeah, um, uh, he apparently really didn't like that at all. He had another poster he wanted to go with, like a black and white poster, but the studio wouldn't let him. But anyway, that is everyone apart from John Carpenter loves that image. Um, that was really powerful. You got that great tagline. You turned it over, and then on the back because they were a little free and easy with the images they put on the back, was like that shot of the guy's double face with the mouth kind of like diagonally. Yes. <laughs> like, I'm like seven or eight or whatever, and I'm just like, one day I'm going to watch this film. One day I'm going to watch this film. And then my... my the dog. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think there might have been the dog with like, you know, the, the mutated dog head, like, puppet oh, thing. Um, uh, just just incredible stuff and my best friend at the time uh not long after that said he'd recorded it off tv or his dad had recorded it off tv and we should come around i should come around and watch it so i went around his house and we were like rummaging through the vhs tapes and trying to work out which one it was and we got it wrong a couple of times and we mm-hmm. put it in the right tape. it started playing and his mum came and turned it off immediately <laughs> Oh no! I did that. So this was like um, like an iconic movie to me, without ever having seen it. So it was it was like my holy grail. Like one day I'm going to watch the thing, and then uh, I picked up a copy of Empire magazine here in the UK, and it had the 100 scariest moments in film, like what we would now call a listicle. Mm-hmm. Uh, like just counting down to number, what is the scariest moment in film? And number one was a scene from The Thing. And I had a split second to decide, am I going to read this description or not? Because I haven't seen the film yet. And I caved. I caved and I read it. (laughs) And it was the scene where they go in with the defibrillator panels and the guy's chest opens up. right through. Right through, and again, the dude just chews the guy's arms off immediately. And he's flailing around with his arm stumps and blood going everywhere. And uh, it was just like, this is the scariest. If you don't know what's coming, this is the scariest moment in, in all of cinema, uh, or the, the most shocking moment in all of cinema. And I was stood there reading it, I think possibly in a newsagent. And I was like, oh, if you don't know what's coming, and now I do. So I've completely spoiled this myself. <laughs> And I, that was almost my introduction to the concept of the spoiler. And I think from that moment on, I've been really pretty spoiler phobic because I remember how disappointed I was. <laughs> and now I knew the scene where I still hadn't seen the movie. Um, I, and I never read anything about it again until I managed to get my hands on a copy. I sat down, I watched it. And from that opening, like, dum dum. John mm-hmm. Carpenter-style synth um, intro. Oh, I was like, this is instantly, instantly got its hooks in me. And um, yeah, it's an absolute classic. I absolutely love that origin story for you. <laughs> <laughs> this is my villain origin story in terms the of story, like... The spoilers have ruined me. Spoiled by the spoilers. But I feel, I, I 100% know how you feel with that because I was a person that, and I say person, I was probably like eight, seven or eight, but that was, we had like one-stop video in my town. This was before like Blockbuster was like a big chain for us in the U.S. And we had like the, to your point, the mom and pop video stores and it would be like, the horror wasn't sanctioned off. It was just like- No. <laughs> drama, comedy, horror. And then like through like the five beaded curtains was like the porn. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> just not really sectioned off like anybody could walk through there but it was the you didn't want to give the beaded curtain sound away that you were going in there <laughs> but i remember be, reading all the backs oh yeah and i can remember being like reading like um like uh like the blob and you know friday the 13th and i hadn't seen any of these but it was also a point where we had graduated to cable and anything played all day long on HBO. Like it doesn't matter what time it was. It was rated R. It was terrifying. It was at two o'clock in the afternoon on a Monday. And then that's really where I got started and just being like, Oh, I want to know, I want to know how this ends. I want to know how this ends. So that's how I got kind of like lurking 
and this is why my podcast is called Between the Bannisters, is lurking between the banisters and watching other people watch it, but just watching the end. Like I didn't want to watch the entire movie, just the end. So I can understand, like now I'm just like, I have to be cognizant of not knowing what, what I'm doing going into it. Sometimes I don't even like watching trailers all the way through um, because there's so much of the movie in the trailer nowadays, oh. like the whole oh. movie's given away. So I try to like keep that under wraps too. So I, I totally get what you're like as at this point, I just need to be spoiler free and let myself like things and let myself gradually enjoy things. So I get it. I get it, man. I get it. I just, I went to see Halloween ends today and before it, they played like four different horror trailers and all of them seem to give away almost the entire movie. And two of the films I already yeah. seen, are like Barbarian, like there's a good chunk of the movie, which is a real going gold movie. There's a big chunk of the movie in the trailer. Uh, Bones and All, there's like a really shocking scene that um, right near the beginning, I think even before the credits, and they just kind of show it in the trailer, which, okay, fair, it's before the, it's before the opening titles, but... Um, I saw that movie cold and it's so unexpected that moment mm -hmm. uh, that it really, it really primed you for the rest of the film. And yeah, it's just in the trailer. It's, um, and I get it, but it's, it's such a shame. It is. It sucks. But back to the things that don't suck. Is the <laughs> <laughs> I told you I'll go 30,000 feet, but i not, not make any points at all. So, <laughs> so why, We've established why you you like it and why why this movie above all others. But how do you feel that this movie in particular became such a favor for you, or how it shaped you in in the ways that you view what's a good horror movie now? It just is so tight and so focused on what it wants to do, and it does what it wants to do so well that it's just the the template for for knowing what your vision is. Mm -hmm. knowing the impact you want to have on your audience and just going for it and getting it right. Like everyone who worked on this film absolutely knocked it out of the park. And it's not a, it's not a four, what they would call now a four quadrant movie where you have to have a little bit of everything to appeal to like every type of audience and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Which, which maybe explains why I didn't do great business when it first opened, but, um, it's, well, for starters, it's all men. Mm -hmm. There's not a single woman in this movie with one exception, which is Adrienne Barbeau plays the voice of the chess computer. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Carpenter regular Adrienne Barbeau, who like from the, the fog and escape from New York, she plays the chess computer. I think you briefly glimpse like a, a, a woman on a, a TV show, uh, there's women in the, the at least one of the posters, that and and that's it. So this is very much a testosterone focused film, mm -hmm. um, with all the. But that's not to say it's any kind of celebration of masculinity. That's right. uh, <laughs> uh, you know it's just focused on these guys in this short space of time in this environment, playing off all these different like character actors against each other. It's like tw yeah. 12 angry men. If 12 angry men wasn't about deciding a court case, but just not getting eaten by an alien monster. Right. That, <laughs> Survival of <laughs> finest. <laughs> yeah. And there's, you know, there's a tradition of that kind of stuff in American cinema, especially like Westerns and so on. Uh, obviously this movie is like massively indebted to Howard Works, uh, both his, his original version of the film uh, the thing from another world, and mm. um, and and his westerns as well. Uh, Carpenter was always big on Rio Bravo and, and and that kind of a deal. So it's it's in that tradition, and it's unashamedly in that tradition. And I think that for a film to be a a masterpiece, it needs to be unashamedly whatever it is. And this is this is a let's put all these different kinds of men in a pressure cooker and see which of them explodes first kind of film. And I love that. I, it's my favorite example of that kind of movie. Yeah. And I think that that's what's great about, um, like you said, all the character actors, like the, everyone is chewing the scenery. Like there's not one 
weak character in there where you're just like, oh, get eaten already or something like that. <laughs> I mean, we've, we've watched movies where you're just like, oh my God, is something going to come after this person and just like kill them already? But uh, what I like about that is the dynamic too. And we'll get to um, the ending of this movie, but like with Keith David and Kurt Russell, like that is so strong towards that last third of the movie uh-huh. with those two. Um, I really, really enjoy everybody that's in this movie. There's not like I've gone through and I've absolutely, we just talked aliens the other day with um, a friend of mine and we were just talking like, there's like, you know, you have Paul Reiser's character where I'm just like, oh my God, like get eaten. (laughs) 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 And I'll never forgive him for that. This guy's just alien food. He's let it be annoying. Let him gnaw off bits of your head. But I love this cast and, and to your point, the pressure cooker theory really, really works because it does not take long for all of them to be under duress and mm-hmm. see how exactly every single archetype that they embody challenges this thing and kind of works into how they're going to either get away from it, get through it, you know, conquer it, what have you. You have all of these different minds going in a million different directions. Nobody's agreeing on how to solve things. And I think that that is so close to human nature because there's nothing that either tears us apart or brings us together like mass hysteria. Oh, absolutely. And that's what you have with these men in there. Yeah. And they're all primed for it already because even before the thing shows up in dog Mm -hmm. form, these guys are all, there's something wrong with all of them. They're, they're all suffering from some kind of personality disorder, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> John Carpenter's vision of Antarctic bases is not that it's the kind of place where a bunch of very serious scientists are going to investigate stuff. It's his view of an Antarctic base is this is where a bunch of misfits and lunars and weirdos and outcasts and people with deep psychological trauma yeah. would go in order to not have to deal with anyone else. Right. Uh, Which I don't think is necessarily an accurate depiction of an Antarctic survey mission, Mm -hmm. but it really really works for the film. Hey, listen, I was so into this movie that when I got out of university, I really didn't know what to do. Um, And I I studied psychology and artificial intelligence at university. And Mm -hmm. while I was scratching my head, wondering what I was going to do for a career, I wrote off to a bunch of people like, oh, can I have a job, please? Just like scattergun approach. And one of them was the British Antarctic Survey. So I wrote them a letter saying, I have a degree in psychology and artificial intelligence, and I thought those things might be useful in an Antarctic survey. And at the time, I thought that was a very serious like, inquiry. Yeah. And looking back, I was probably just thinking of the thing. Right. From what I know to be true. <laughs> I have picked I, up my the core competencies are spot on for this particular position. <laughs> Somewhere along the line, who knows where, I've picked up the impression that uh, psychology and artificial intelligence might be useful skills in right. your Antarctic mission. People are going to go mad. You're going to need someone to maybe hype up the chess robot into doing... You're going to need someone to beat the chess computer. I don't know. I'm your man. I'm I'm in. And you know um, what? They wrote me back... Open to compensation three. conversations. Let me, <laughs> let me know. They wrote me back a very nice... Thank you, but thank you, but not at this time. <laughs> We've chosen another candidate. It's mm-hmm. okay. Your time, you you will have your time to shine with that, with that collection of, of tendencies. But what I think, I, what I like what you said about the misfits, it is kind of a little bit like sci-fi, like, you know, sci-fi horror con air. Like you have all of these like misfit toys oh, yeah. in one, one Antarctic, you know, kind of scramble. But mm-hmm. I want to talk about how you feel, about, especially being in, in psychology and I work in behavioral science. So, um, about MacReady. Uh, so MacReady <laughs> was written as, and I don't think this is necessarily specified within the film, uh, but he, Carpet is very, very clear on this. He's, he's written as an ex-Vietnam mm-hmm. chopper pilot. Mm-hmm. So he, Carpenter's vision is that this guy ran like Huey missions in, in Nam. And, and, you know, he's part of that early 80s post-Nam 
what is a man uh, theme in American cinema. Right. Like mm-hmm. the stuff, that, same stuff that gave us uh, First Blood, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So mm-hmm. this is like dawn of the Reagan era, post-Vietnam, how are we coping with what happened in Vietnam uh, kind of deal. And, not well. Um, not well. Not well. We're not coping. Not We've well at all. fucked off to Antarctica. That's yeah. how badly we go. I'm out. Uh, he's introduced. Um, he's introduced playing chess against a chess wizard, uh, which tells us two things. Because there's bustling activity to a degree going on in the uh, in the base. Some some will listen to music roller skating around or you know i think there's a pool table maybe or tv or just chit chat he could be doing any of those things but no he's off in a little room on his own getting day drunk assuming it's the day but certainly sunlight drunk uh knocking back the whiskey and he's just playing chess not he could be playing chess against a real person i'm sure someone will play but he's playing chess against the computer uh, so it tells you that he's got a little bit of a drinking problem mm-hmm. going on with the whiskey. Uh, he's a loner. He's withdrawn. Um, and also he really doesn't like to lose. He yeah. really does not like to lose. He's playing, some, he's playing something in human, playing against something in human. And when it looks like the chip's down, he says, fuck you. And... <laughs> Like he goes for the apocalyptic option, which is he pours his whiskey into the computer. Right. Like, like you're not going to beat me. We're both going down in flames, and 100%. that is. Like, I mean, talk about foreshadowing. Right, right, end credits. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned the ending. Like at the ending, yeah, he's facing off against something, something that might be inhuman, someone who might not be a one, but a something, mm-hmm. and. Um, he just sits there opposite them and he brings out the whiskey. Yep. And that's it. Like, I, you know, if, if you're the thing, let me tell you, um, we we're going out together. Right. And he, he gives child, he gives child some whiskey. He's like, you know, here's a drink and you know, bang and roll credits. Yeah. That's that's he, how he, does, <laughs> he doesn't like to lose. He does not. Like and I absolutely adore uh, Childs, because mm-hmm. he is not that he is uh, purely like an antithesis of. <laughs> oh my God, I almost called him Snake. That's not where we are. <laughs> <laughs> That's not where we are. Um, he's not that he's an antithesis of McCready, but he also has his own way of doing things. Like he is very particular in the way that he operates. Mm-hmm. He everybody there is is no nonsense. Like again, to your point, where like. I don't understand how they thought any of these people were going to be like happy-go-lucky and get along Mm -hmm. Um, because everybody kind of has their own agenda. But what I like about that is he is also challenging to McCready in the way he operates. He calls him on his bullshit with a lot of stuff Mm -hmm. and he has pushback on him, which I think is really necessary. And not that it's changing McCready's view of like how to go about defeating whatever the hell this thing is. Um, But I think that's, something that wasn't happening to McCready's character through the film. Like mm-hmm. he was the man that everybody leaned on. Like, what is he going to do? Who is he in charge of? What orders is he going to give? And then you have, you know, towards that, which I think is a beautiful one, last one third of a, of a horror film is you have Childs giving him that pushback and giving those other options, mm-hmm. um, which I think is really, really necessary in that, that area because you have that like kind of one, two, three punch of all these scary things happening at once. And when Mm -hmm. they have that time to breathe, you have a little bit of brevity with those two kind of having their like tete-a-tete a a bit, which I think was really, really a dynamic way to do things. Yeah. I think if anything, I mean, I I said they were all like damaged misfits and and oddballs and and so on. Childs, if anything, is the most together (laughs) of all of them. Yeah. Um, but it's it's interesting that it's McCready who ends up stepping up and being the leader. And it's yeah. McCready is not he's not the obvious choice for that role in some ways because he is so withdrawn and he doesn't seize it immediately. It's more that everyone's on the back foot and mm-hmm. he's just a little out ahead of the curve. 
yeah. a little a little bit faster to be like some someone needs to pull this together mm-hmm. and he realizes a little bit quicker than the others that your best chance for survival is if you're the leader because otherwise you you can end up getting picked off real quick and you won't know whether the you know you can trust yourself you can't trust anyone else therefore you should be in charge um and he he kind of seizes that and pulls pulls everyone into into a shape which is which is necessary he realizes that's necessary as well but he steps into that in a way that you know, he, he's been sitting off playing on his chess computer or whatever. He's he's a withdrawn kind of guy. It's more that the pressure of the situation and the logic of the situation dictates mm-hmm. that if, if he wants to get through this, that's his best chance is just to seize it. Um, but it's, he is more together than most of the rest of the cast. But even, even McCready is kind of, kind of a loose cannon, not a natural leader. It's mm-hmm. probably Childs who is who ought to have that role yeah that's a very good way to look at it because i've always kind of like i said i've always liked child's kind of pushback and being like literally go fuck yourself mccready like, <laughs> like, <laughs> like he just has this attitude where it's like why should i be listening to you because mm-hmm. here i am with also the smarts mm-hmm. um and he's not getting his kind of due with it but what is interesting to me about the way that they kind of go out is, and it's not like a quiet, like if we're, you know, if I go down, we, we go down together and, and X, Y, and Z, uh-huh. not like a, and even in that point, I feel like there is this, they're kind of facing it. Like this is just like, and it, and it is what it is kind of thing, but I still don't feel like there's a tight camaraderie there. And I like that. Uh-huh. I like how it's not, like all of a sudden now it's a buddy cop movie and you know we're gonna get through this together pal it's still very tense between the two of them Mm -hmm. but they know that the only way through is to both of them to help get rid of this thing whatever it is um so i love that it's i love that and it's you're right it's not a body count movie it's although it has that element to it uh it's not a it's not your typical slasher because it's almost kind of like a slasher where people get picked off one by one, mm-hmm. but it, it, it's more, I mean, McCready shoots an innocent guy through the head in this film by accident. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, haven't you, we all done a little? <laughs> there's, there's not many, like, I feel like that was relatively new, even even in the kind of more downbeat seventies era of horror. Yeah, there's not many films, certainly certainly very few action films that would even contemplate having the hero be momentarily startled because people quite understandably don't entirely trust him, and for his response to be instinctively shooting a guy through the head, and then realizing later that oh no, actually he was innocent. I mean that's that's tough dark stuff. Very very dark. Not, and I, not helping the PTSD either. <laughs> no, like he's. I mean, yeah, he's he. Frankly, is clearly suffering from PTSD mm-hmm. uh, of some kind. I don't know how extreme it is, but he's got something going on post Vietnam. And and there he is with a gun in charge under pressure. And it would be a classic redemption arc for him to do a great job, but instead he's just shooting this guy through the head. Um, in like he's he's got the right idea. He works out the logic of doing the blood tests, which is mm-hmm. an incredible scene. Maybe my yeah. favorite scene in the whole film. Um, but it, it, the movie doesn't let him have that like redemption arc mm-hmm. that that's un, unsullied or un, untouched. He kills an innocent guy. He fucks up. Like people die. There's only two of them left by the end, you know. And and they're probably just about to to keel over um, from the cold, if nothing else. So, you know, he he gives it his best shot. He gives it everything he has, and there's a heroicism in that, and that's why he's a great hero. But the movie ultimately is like, that. that's all it gives him. Yeah. It's like, you gave it your best shot in that regard, you're a hero, but uh, it was a tough situation. And ultimately, you kind of fucked it. <laughs> right, <laughs> you said you chose door number three, 
when all the winning things were behind one and two. Better luck in the next life. Here's your consolation prize. Oh, uh, it. it's hard. And it, the ending is really heartbreaking because you're just like, you want to sit there and be like, they made it. <laughs> but it's but so, no. the ambiguity is really what kind of cooks it up a notch, which I really like. So it's I true. always, yeah, I always ask this question because I think I, this one's going to be kind of hard because if you are like me, I'm definitely a practical effects addict. I absolutely love it. And there's incredible practical effects in this movie. Never, never better, I would say. Oh, no. I mean, this was like 10, not 10 years, like 13 years later, we got into Jurassic Park and, and you know, 50-50 animatronic CGI stuff. Uh, but in terms of like just pure practical effects, um, I, is, is there anything you could point to that is definitively better than the thing? I don't think so. No, it's so, there's things that are interesting. Like, I feel like the, oh my God, that, that really weird, like a uh, caterpillar monster that's chasing Kirsty in Hellraiser. That oh. was a cool one. That's an interesting one that looked like a bunch of like 18 things pieced together oh. on a bicycle. Um, but <laughs> I love that, but I'm, this is probably going to be tough. What are your top favorite scenes of this movie? Top three scenes. Oh, Top three, um, the chess computer. Sorry. I'm probably going to name like half the scenes. I'm going to name more than three scenes. Let, let me name everything that comes to mind and then we'll whittle it down. Okay, that sounds computer, great. Chess computer introduction. That's number okay. one. Perfect. Um, the guy's head comes off and grows legs. And we oh, get the Norris. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it? I'm, I'm probably going to slightly misquote this, but it's you got to be shitting me. You gotta, you gotta be shit me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that that line basically. Uh, the ending. Uh, y- you know what? Oh, and the um, the blood test scene. Yeah. I want to spend the rest of this winter tied to this fucking couch. <laughs> like there's four. So I don't know. You asked for three. I've given you four. I don't know which one I would lose out of those. But oh. those, those are the those are the great ones. They're good ones. And all of like the 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 deformities and all of the changes that happen to to people and like the oh, the dog scene is obviously breaks my heart. Dog scene. I don't like it at all. Um the but dog's head splitting open like a flower, that literally. one. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh my god, you know what we didn't mention? Oh. The scene the scene where they go out. Can we just take a moment to like offer up prayers to Wilford Brimley? The, the incredible Wilfred Brimley, who in this movie is, if you've ever listened to the, the director's commentary on the thing, it's John Carpenter and Kurt Russell, clearly a little bit drunk and just having a way over time. And every time Wilfred Brimley's on screen, they're like, Wilfred Brimley! They're so excited by his mere presence. They love him so much. And they're like, he was so cantankerous. <laughs> we have such fond memories. Of oh Wilfred my gosh, Wilfred Brimley. Uh, 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 he looks cantankerous. <laughs> you know what? He always looked that way. I swear to God, he's probably like 29 in this movie. He's just, he was born. He emerged from his mother looking like that and grumbling <laughs> about something. But the, this, the scene, sorry, this, the scene I forgot to mention was when they go back to see him, he get, or he goes back out to see Wilfred Brimley, who's been like sectioned off in this yeah. Uh, outhouse cabin. Nobody like, trusts him. Yeah, and they pulls back, pulls back the slider on the door to peer in through the the door hole, and he's sitting there, and he's like, "I wasn't well for a while. I've got it together now. You've got to let me come back in to the to the outpost." And he's saying all this in a very like straightforward calm sensible voice and there's a noose right in front of him he's hung up a noose he's sitting right next to it going i'm fine now everything's everything is a-okay on the up and up as you can see (laughs) done a little Uh, redecorating but it's 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 just the dark comedy of that is and i didn't even notice the noose the first time I watched it, it was only on like a second watch. I was like, wait a second. 
Wait oh, a second. That's dark, Wilford. <laughs> it, it, it is pretty dark. It it's is so pretty. funny that you say that he's 29 <laughs> in this movie because he's, I've only known him as old, like my whole yeah. life. And it reminds me of like, do you ever read Catcher in the Rye? I've, ne I've never read Catcher in the Rye. Oh room. my gosh. There's one line in there where I think he's talking about like a teacher or something or just somebody he knows. And he's like, and then this robe that he was probably born in where he's just like saying that like this man is like, he's been old. Like my, to my mother, he was old. Like oh. <laughs> just old from time began. Like cracked out of an egg, an old man and continues to be an old man and looks the same until the day he dies. <laughs> Listen, I've just I've just looked it up. How old would you say Wilfred Brimley was in the thing? Oh, I'm gonna say he was at least 55, but watch him be like 46. He was 46? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. What? No, there ain't no way. Oh, lies. Listen, I I am story lies. I am forty six, and I when I look I'm forty five. Do I look I, like Wilfred Brimley? You, you, neither. Listen, listen. <laughs> neither of us, and I can put my hand on my heart. Whatever else they take from us, now, neither of us look like Wilfred Brimley. Whoa! <laughs> Bless my word. Uh, That's what's so crazy. And you sit there and look at things like National Lampoons too. And like Belushi and like all of those like young comedians, they're like, oh yeah, they were like 24 in this. And it's like, they look yeah. like they're like 40 years old all the time. But they were just How eating like fistfuls of red meat and cigarettes. Like, yeah, well, <laughs> fistfuls of red meat. <laughs> oh my gosh. I also forgot to mention one of the iconic lines that I feel like has been stolen in a lot of movies, which I cannot name right now because my mind is like a fuzz but mm -hmm. it's weird and pissed off. <laughs> I don't know, but it's, it's weird, weird and pissed, and pissed off. off. Um, and I think aliens, Bill Paxton says it. Yes, that's it. That's um, it. So that's that was a, a line that I always thought was super, super funny. And like, there is parts of brevity in this movie and that's, the tension, I think, helps with that because the whole movie is tense. Like, you don't, know who has it who's got what who is infected where are the infection sources and everybody's kind of going mad and again mass hysteria pointing mm -hmm. the finger at everybody else mm -hmm. is there any scene or any part of the movie where you're like mm, i wish they didn't do that or they could have done this a different way uh honestly nothing comes to mind um the if you watch it on like hd now Mm -hmm. like, which is a lot clearer than you would would have been able to watch in the 80s on VHS. You can see the edges of some of the the matte paintings and stuff like that. Because mm -hmm. like, they, they mostly shot this on, on location in, in the Yukon in Canada, uh, but they shot a little bit on the studio backlot. And I think the scenes, the scenes where they come across the uh, alien spacecraft... Not when they go down inside it necessarily, but the scenes on the the outside where they're like clambering across the top of it and like approaching the uh, the hatch to go in. Some of that is like painting work, and it's solid painting work. But unfortunately, we live in an era where you can just you can watch this stuff uh, in super high definition. Right. And you, can, you can see the edges every of it. Or of every face. And I think I think this is how closely I've watched the movie the last time I watched it. I think you can see someone's feet clipping out slightly because they're walking so close to the edge of the map painting. So oh. they, they disappear behind. They just kind of vanish because they're walking on white snow and the edge of the painting is also white snow, so you can't see the edge. But the person's feet just kind of half disappear at one point. And it's because oh. they're... You know, this that is the level of quality of this film that if you ask me for something you I wish I hadn't they hadn't done, it's that's all I can think of. It's, yeah. it's just like the limits of the, the painting special effects. That's clean. Just, everything else is just yeah. mwah, chef's kiss. Yeah, it's a pretty infallible movie. Uh, there's and something I else I want to mention as well, which is the, the geography of the mm -hmm. film. This the setup at the beginning, you have these roving camera shots 
first of all, I think like uh, omniscient point of view, just kind of going around the corridors, um, following the guy roller skating and all that kind of thing, just getting the layout of the thing. All those lengthy corridors, which is probably only about one corridor that they're shot from different angles, but it looks like there's a bunch of lengthy corridors. Um, and just establishing the geography of the place and establishing how claustrophobic it is. Mm-hmm. And it just really laying it out. The blocking in this film from that shot and the kind of almost point of view shots, I think maybe of the dog at another point of following, following the dog around. So mm-hmm. All that stuff sets up the tight, confined geography of the location in a way that is really super necessary for the, the tension in the rest of the film to build on. Yeah. Um, so that, that establishment of the, the confined space and the geography combined with the incredible score, mm-hmm. uh, which is it's supposed to be a Morricone score and there's a lot of Morricone's work in it, but... Carpenter actually got a, a score from Morricone, kind of liked it, but thought he could do better, and then sent Morricone a bunch of his own synth work and was like, can you do something more like this? So there was that more collaborative bit as well. And if you listen yeah. to the track, it goes from the kind of classic Carpenter-esque dum-dum, like synth stuff, to a more classical Morricone score and, and back again. So it kind of switches between the two. But people don't really remember the, the more classical Morricone stuff in it. They remember the kind of Carpenter Morricone collaboration stuff, which is just synth noises and super minimalist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's like that part of the music plus the uh, sense, sense of claustrophobia through the uh, cinematography. Um, I mean, we talked a lot about the characters, but it, it's those things plus the characters are what makes this really work for me. Yeah, and it's the containedness of where are you going to go? Yeah. <laughs> Not like you can drive to another town. <laughs> it's like you are isolated as hell up here. Oh, so yeah. Wh- that also, I feel like to your to your point too, that geography is an extra character of it because it has to, they have no choice to work around it or work within it, those, that particular parameter. And I love that. And it's such a, it is such a tense movie and I will always love this movie just because it has sweet, sweet young Kurt Russell in it. And it's exactly <laughs> too, absolutely no wrong for me there. Looking good. Looking like Snake, if Snake Plissken just suffered a major depressive episode, oh, that would be McCree. I know. Just a couple of months alone with some Hagen does and not a razor to be found. Oh, poor guy. Post, post this movie, this was, it's worth pointing out, this was the person John Carpenter's so-called apocalypse trilogy. Like that's what he called it. Um, so it was this uh, Prince of Darkness and then the Mouth of Madness. Mm-hmm. I love all three. This is my favorite, but I love the others. But they're both incredible. Yeah. Um, all, and all of them super down endings, which is oh, hundred percent. Especially in the Mouth of Madness, my word. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that scene where she's like does like the Exorcist walk, kind of. Oh man, She's what a what the bedroom a and all those tendrils and things and the cop on the couch. Um, that movie still scares trip. <laughs> I can't watch it in its entirety. Um, so he, he the carpenter went on to do those films as well, which are in a similar spirit. Uh, also off the back of this film, there's a few other things to mention. There was a comic series or a couple of comic series off the back of this, which wow went on to explain what happened next and all this stuff. And uh, I think in the in the comics, you know, non-canon, but uh, neither of them were a thing, but then they get rescued by a submarine and then the, and then the, the thing is else in South America or something and then uh, Child does end up becoming a thing. And there's all this there's all this plot that follows on, but it's all like if you read the comics only. Uh, there was oh, the prequel movie, like what happened in the Norwegian base. Yeah. Uh, which, um, to be honest, isn't great. But I think it's it starts quite well and then kind of goes off the rails because, in, in part, because it's trying to be a prequel, but it's also trying to be a remake. I mean, it's so similar uh, in so many ways. Um, and 
apparently they did a lot of practical effects for that movie. And then the studio watched a kind of rough cut and was like, get rid of all the practical effects. CGI is the way to go now. And they redid kind of everything in CGI. Mm. And frankly, it's just not the same. You just don't want a CGI thing movie. It's the practical effects are the, the heart of the thing. Yeah. Um, so that was a shame. Um, it's, if you, if you love the thing, it's interesting to watch, but yeah, I mean, you just look at it and go, why this does not need to exist. It's a shame. <laughs> um, there's a board game. I've got a copy of the board game. A board game? What? What is the object of the game? It's, it's well, you know, for your podcast listeners, they won't be able to see it, but I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna hold it up just for you, though. I'm going to describe there. the hell out of this thing. <laughs> we'll, do a, we'll do a visual um, kind of description. Unboxing. Okay, so it's a gorgeous box, has the thing on it and that gorgeous text. Um, and it's called. It's called Outpost. <laughs> Outpost Thirty One. It's it's glitching in and out of my video, but uh, it's called Infection, Infection Outpost Thirty One. Infection Outpost Thirty One, and it's you know cards and uh, you've got the base. It's, the base map. It looks so a little. It's what are the a little rules? Like clue, you know, clue. You've got the ballroom and all that. Yeah. Kind of stuff. It's laid out like that. So you can go around the, the base, Outpost 31, and you can try and work out who is the thing. That <laughs> is nuts. <laughs> Clearly well-preserved. We're not going to play that. Well, we're going to go through it. play that a lot now, of fun. Okay. <laughs> um, <So> crazy. <laughs> cultural, cultural impact of this movie as well. Have you ever seen that episode of, like, The X-Files where there's something yes. evil in the ice and it mm-hmm. defrosts in the base? And all that stuff. I mean, that's just one example. There's a bunch of stuff. That oh, yeah. Completely permeated the culture. In ways, uh, like I said, even just that one line has been in like several different movies because it's a funny line. Um, Thingu, like Pingu, but the thing. Yeah. <laughs> have you ever seen? Have you seen Pingu? It's. I know who he is. A little penguin. Yeah, the little penguin. Someone remade the thing, but they did it entirely. Stop it. Like, that's a scene with Pingu, and it's cool. He definitely Pingu. has a McCready attitude, Pingu. Most of the time, <laughs> he's always fucking pissed off at something. He's pissed off. He just wants to be left. Leave that penguin alone. He's um, so mad when he's making the Valentine. I've seen that like meme a million times. He looks so bad. He's like, noot, noot, and he's got his flamethrower. It's so cool. Oh, I love it. I could do this all day. This is amazing. So I always ask, just to wrap up, What every, sometimes the story is just a story. But do you feel that the thing has an allegory all of its own, or do you feel like this movie was trying to say something? What do you feel, in your opinion, that this movie was trying to say? I think that... I mean, John Carpenter's a smart guy. They can't help but be stuff in this movie, which is derived from his worldview. Uh, but I, I think the strength of the thing is that it doesn't put allegory uh, front and center like a lot of more modern horrors do. Mm-hmm. It's its focus is its overwhelming focus is just let's put these guys in a pressure cooker and watch them pop mm-hmm. they're popping they're popping like eggs on uh sigourney weaver's hot plate <laughs> <and> ghostbusters <laughs> just going off one by one uh you know they're, they're, i'm mixing my metaphors they bounce off each other it's uh and that's it and he j- he wants to give the audience a good time he wants to show them something they've never seen before mm-hmm. um he, he he just wants to blow some minds uh the darkness to it the apocalyptic uh, element to it is deeply cynical, but with with this kind of streak of hope, this ripple of hope running through it. Because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, McCready is a guy who's really trying. And this kind of washed up, down at heel, I just want to be left alone kind of guy can pick himself up and put himself back on his feet and say, no, I'm going to give this everything I've got. I'm not going to let this alien win. Then, then there's hope for all of us, even though at the end of it, it things are pretty apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he didn't lay down and die. He, right. Like he, he, like freaking Jake LaMotta, 
like Robert De Niro in Raging Bull, you mm-hmm. didn't you didn't knock me out. You didn't get me down. Yep. And uh, that's that's the attitude. You didn't you, you didn't get me down. The thing. <laughs> oh, I love it. You you. I got rescued by a submarine. That's what happened. <laughs> apparently, apparently, I then got rescued by a submarine. <laughs> Which where from where? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, listen, I I got that from Wikipedia. These <laughs> According to the printed word, they were rescued by a submarine. They end up on a submarine at some point. Who knows? Oh, I don't know. Right. It sounds like nonsense, but maybe it's good. Oh, it's all good. If you have read the comics, please write into Mo and tell them. Yeah, hit me up. Let me know. I want to talk about it. Show me some stuff. So can you tell the kids at home anything that you're going to be involved in, where they can find podcasts, where they can find articles? Where can they find your work? Uh, You can find my work at Uh, whitlockandpope.com. In fact, if you type in Hale Ratma, R-A-A-T, tma uh dot com as well it redirects to my site because i i let i love vhs movies and i i leapt on that domain um <laughs> it's the truth. It's the truth of the matter i was like i'm still in the domain immediately hey got, it, got, it, got, it. got it um uh, so you can find me there you can also find me on twitter at whitlock and pope uh i'm andrew pope my colleague genesis whitlock is uh no longer writes for the site but is very supportive and very supportive of keeping her name in the site title um yeah you can find me there i record on various podcasts when people are kind enough to offer me a slot and i've just recorded uh a london film festival roundup at uh, the cinematologists podcast so uh if you google for that podcast you can find my thoughts on inaritu's bardo uh, which is his um, much disliked two and a half hour exploration of Mexican identity and the perils of being a privileged, uh, well-financed filmmaker, which some people found a bit annoying, but uh, I thought there's stuff to like in it. So I went on the cinematologist and I said so. Uh, well, there you go. You heard it here first. <laughs> so do give him a follow but yeah i'm so excited like i said i've been wanting to talk about this movie for a while i'm a huge fan of this movie very big breakthrough for sci-fi horror for me i really was trying to be very voracious about it even in the books that i was reading in that genre so i'm so glad that i got to talk about it today and a pleasure to be on thank you you have no idea how long we tried to orchestrate this kids it's (laughs) like What's your diary look like? I'm not available to next dude around four. Oh, it's got to be done for Halloween, but at the same time, it's right in the middle of the London Film Festival. And uh. I've been watching like five movies a day. So if if I've been incoherent on this podcast, mate, let me tell you, it's, it's going to be great. Purely, it's pure sleep deprivation. Pure uh-huh. sleep deprivation. So he says. Uh, so, all right, kids, we will see you next week. <laughs>